Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. And we're coming again today to talk to you more about Easter and more specifically about the resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 49, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Spiritual Body. I have a memory of death that has energized me. I was called to the dying bedside of a godly Christian woman, and when I got to her, her words did not come easily. But at one point she whispered, I'm almost there. She's speaking about heaven and the glory that lay just before her. And I looked into her eyes, and it seemed to me that even in her enfeebled condition that those eyes were dancing with delight. I've thought about that experience on more than one occasion. I mean, here was a woman who had learned to discipline her mind to meditate on the future promises of God. And as she stood, as it were, on the banks of the Jordan, waiting to cross over, her mind was taken up into the glory that would be revealed. She had her bags packed and she was ready to go. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest treatment in our Bible on the nature of the resurrection of believers. It's a fitting passage of Scripture to study at Easter, for it connects the resurrection of Jesus with our resurrection. Up until this point in our study, we have covered everything from the content of the Christian gospel to the established fact of the resurrection of Jesus to the truth that believers share a common destiny with Jesus in the resurrection of the body. But now in today's passage, Paul advances his discussion and describes the spiritual nature of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Does that sound strange to you? Well, it should. See, up till now, we've said that believers will be raised bodily just like Jesus. And we've also seen that the body that is to come is infinitely superior to the present body. And so now Paul shows us how that is. The body that is to come, while it is a real physical body, is at the same time a spiritual body. You know, in the first part of the passage, Paul offers up a comparison between this present body and the new body that we will have in eternity. And then, in the second part of the passage, he will describe the nature of a spiritual body. So let's begin our study. Let's look first at the comparison between the body that we now have and the one that we shall have for all of eternity. And as Paul begins his comparisons, please notice that he uses the word sown four times. He will say, sown perishable, and then sown in dishonor, and then sown in weakness, and finally sown a natural body. And so what does he mean when he says that our present body is sown? In order to answer that, please go back to verse 36. You know, there we read, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
Paul has used an image of a farmer sowing seeds. Seeds are sown into the ground, and then the seed actually disintegrates into the soil. But out of the soil comes a plant. A change has occurred. And so Paul is using the word sown to speak of the point of death in the life of the believer. When we die, our bodies are sown into the earth. So let me take a little detour here and just so that we can answer a question that I'm frequently asked. See, many Christians want to know what the Bible says about cremation. And I always respond in two ways. I say, first, the Bible does not condemn cremation. And I also know that for those of us who are in large urban centers, the cost of burial can be prohibitive. And it really doesn't matter if your body disintegrates into the earth or it's burned. In either case, God is able to raise the new spiritual body out of the old. Yes, it would be a miracle for him to do that, but creation itself is the calling of something out of nothing. I mean, God does that sort of thing. And so that's my first answer. It's not wrong to crebate, but, but I have something else to say on the subject. See, when I die, I personally want to be buried, and it's for this reason. It mirrors the teaching here in 1 Corinthians 15. I want it to be said that those left after me are sowing my body in the hope of the resurrection of my body. I want what is done in my death to mirror the biblical teaching. And so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of sowing the body, he's actually referring to burying of the body. So when you read sown, think of buried. What is it, asks Paul, that we do with the remains of a man or woman who's died in Christ? Well, we take the body and we sow it into the earth. And what should we make of that? And so Paul begins his four contrasts, and here's the first. What is sown or what is buried is perishable. Now, we all know about perishables because, at least for many of us in our culture, a perishable food item is one that has a best-before stamp on it. You know, you buy a jug of milk and it says, best before April 25. And that means, of course, that the food deteriorates with time. And so it is with our present earthly bodies. They deteriorate. Look, I'm all for healthy eating and plenty of sleep and exercise and seeing your doctor on regular occasions. I mean, all of that stuff. But we do know that all of this is like storing your milk in the refrigerator. It simply stalls the process. From the moment we're born, the reproduction of cells within us suffer damage, and eventually they'll not be able to heal. Free radicals damage all sorts of cellular components, and the machine is destined to fail. However, the body that is to come suffers no such damage. When the spiritual body is raised, it will be imperishable. And so that's the first contrast. And and now to the second. What is sown or what is buried is buried in dishonor. Now, that may strike us as a strange thing to say because most of us think of a funeral or a memorial service as a time in which we honor the person that has passed. But that's not what Paul has in mind. He means that the very thing itself that is a dead body is dishonorable. That is, a dead body has been robbed of dignity, or it's an indignity to witness a body that does not function. It's a, it's a brain that doesn't think. It's eyes that perform no function at all. It's a heart. It's arms. Everything is rendered utterly useless. I mean, have a look at your present body and then imagine that everything that now seems so marvelous will dissolve into worthlessness. But, says Paul, what is raised is in glory. There is a fullness of life in the body to come. Our new bodies will be honorable and will never lose their honor. 
The third contrast is the body that is buried is buried in weakness. And of course, when we're alive, weakness is a very apt way to describe our bodies. I mean, I know it's true that the body that we now have has some marvelous abilities to fight disease and, and even to heal itself. But of course, it won't keep doing that. What is raised is then raised in power. Listen to how Martin Luther described this. He said, as weak as the human body is now, without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives so that not a thing will be impossible for it, if it has a mind for it. And it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float here below on earth or above in heaven. See, Luther imagined a body that would respond to any command that the will gives it. Of course, in eternity, our will deeply desires to do that which God wants. And, and since we have been created to rule and reign over all the works of God's hands, Luther was right. Nothing that God asks of you will be impossible for your new body. It will respond without limitations. And that leads to the final contrast. The body that is buried is a natural body. That is, it rightfully belongs to this earth or to this nature. It functions on this earth because it was made for this earth. And because this earth is fallen, subject to frustration, so is the natural body. But the body that is raised is a spiritual body. Now, if you're not careful, you'll think of a natural body as a physical body and a spiritual body as a non-physical body. But that's entirely the wrong idea. A spiritual body is a real body, but it rightfully belongs to the age to come, and that's where it functions. Look at it this way. Our physical bodies are in some ways out of control. They become easily addicted to things that would destroy them. They're unruly, and many times we are caught in a battle to control our bodies. All of you who've ever attempted a diet know what I'm talking about. But the body in the age to come serves the redeemed human spirit perfectly. See, there is so much to learn about the spiritual body. Every year we have the privilege of putting together a five-message series of Dr. Neufeld's most impactful messages of the year, and this year is no exception. So available to anyone who would ask as our free gift, we want to make available for this month only the highlight reel 2016. Five wonderful, inspiring, and biblical messages from Dr. Neufeld's Journey to the Cross, Remembering the Reformation, and Finding Forgiveness, and other series as well. All of these messages represent the excellence in Bible teaching that you can expect from Back to the Bible Canada. So please take the opportunity to ask for your free Highlight Reel 2016 CD series today as our gift. To request your copy, find out more about Back to the Bible Canada, or offer a much-appreciated ministry donation, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425, or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. In order to understand the contrast between the natural body and the spiritual body, listen to what Paul says. I'm reading verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now here we have a quote. The first man, Adam, became a living being. And, and where's that quote found? Well, most likely Paul's referring to Genesis 2 verse 7. 
And there it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So let's remember how God created Adam's body. In a sense, Adam has two natures. He is of the dust of the earth, meaning that on a physical level, his being is entirely a natural being. Like every other living being, it is comprised of flesh. His construction can be studied, and even though it has differences from other animals, yet like the animals, he is a skeletal structure, he has a respiratory system, he has muscles, nerves, so on. And so in one sense, he's like everything else in the creation. But there's something unique in the man. God has breathed his breath into him, and as such, Adam has aspects of his being that reflect the God who's made him. Adam is created to relate to God, unlike all the animals. Adam is able to reason, and as such, he names the animals and is called to rule them, governing the creation on behalf of God. And so, this is what Adam became when God created him. He became a living being. There's something in this passage that's really impossible to see in the English, but if we were to read it in its original Greek, it would become obvious. The word for being is the Greek word suche. It's often translated as the word soul. So we might translate this passage as the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Okay, but here's where it becomes interesting. When Paul said in verse 44 that there is a natural body and there's a spiritual body, the word for natural is the Greek word suhekon. We might translate that as the difference between a soulish man and a spirit man. So what's the difference? Well, on the one hand, we might think of the difference as the difference between a body that dies and one that never dies, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. When Adam became a soulish man, at least originally, he would not die. Death entered the human race after his sin. But it was not so before when he was created a soulish man. So being soulish, according to Paul's line of thought, is not sinful. But the entire point of what Paul is explaining is that the life to come, that is, when the believers are raised with a new body, that the nature of the new body is superior to the sinless body that Adam had inherited when he was first created. Look again at verse 45. Adam became a soulish man. Now, when did he become this? Well, the answer is when God created him from the dust of the earth and when God breathed into him, that's when he became a soulish man. Now, look at the next part of verse 45. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, when did Jesus, who is called the last Adam, become that? Because to say that he became that means that he wasn't always that. Jesus became at some point in time a life-giving spirit. So when did Jesus become a life-giving spirit? Well, certainly not at his incarnation. That is, when Jesus was born, he took upon himself human flesh so that he entered fully into the experience of humanity. He shared a similar existence to that of Adam, the soulish man. Yes, Jesus did not sin, but he fully can be thought of as a man made of the dust of the earth with the breath of God breathed into him. So I ask again, when did he become a life-giving spirit? And the answer must be at his resurrection. At his resurrection, his new body was infinitely superior to Adam's body before Adam sinned. Ah, yes, but we have to identify what the difference is. I mean, look at it this way. Adam, because he was formed of the dust of the earth, shared characteristics with all of the earth. 
So here's the question. Did Adam need to eat in order to survive? The answer must be, yes, he did, just like all the other creatures that God had made. So in the garden, Adam's food was abundant, and yet at the same time, he's naked. And by that, I mean that he's vulnerable. He's constantly in need of various external factors in order to survive. It's the nature of soulish existence. But as I've said, God provided Adam with everything that he needed to keep on surviving, provided he didn't sin. And so Adam ate and God covered his nakedness, and that is essential to the nature of this body. But at his resurrection, Christ's body was transformed and became a life-giving spirit. So that probably means that upon his resurrection, the body of Jesus is animated by the Holy Spirit. So let me not get ahead of myself. Let's, Let's get back to Adam. Most Bible teachers point out that neither Adam nor Eve had eaten from the tree of life. Look at Genesis 3, verse 22. After Adam and Eve sinned, verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And so it seems to me that there was a probationary period in the garden. Adam had become a living soul, but only after he passed his probation would a change take place in him. Had he resisted the temptation of the evil one, he would have been invited to eat of the tree of life, and in consequence, his body would have been transformed, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live whether he ate or not. Life in and of itself would have flowed from him. Now, Adam failed, but where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Contrast the temptation of Adam to the temptation of Christ. See, with each temptation of Christ, Christ resists evil and passes the probation. And therefore, in his resurrection, Christ is taken to the tree of life and he eats and is raised a life-giving spirit. Do you see what's happened? Indeed, I would argue that, yes, it is true that Christ ate and drank after his resurrection, but he does not eat in order to survive. Rather, he eats in order to enjoy the creation that God his Father has provided him. And that's the difference between the body of Adam and the body of the raised Christ. And and by the way, that's why Christ's resurrection is so different from that of the resurrection of Lazarus. When Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus stepped out of the tomb with precisely the same body that he had had when he had entered the tomb. But when Christ stepped out of the tomb, he stepped out of the tomb with a body that was truly a spiritual body. Now, Are you ready to finally describe the difference between the body that we have and the body that is to come? Look at verse 47. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Let me see if I can state that in my own words. The first man's physical body was comprised from the materials that are inherent in this creation. Uh, I can almost sense that many of you can anticipate what I'm about to say. Jesus' resurrection body is made up of materials that are inherent to the new creation. Now, when we get to the next section of Scripture, which we will discuss tomorrow, we're going to see that Paul will argue that our present bodies are unsuited to the kingdom to come. See, imagine, if you will, that you're able to travel to the planet Saturn because you want to live there. Well, First of all, that planet is so much larger than ours that the force of gravity would be such that it would crush your body, which is made for this earth, into a little blob of flesh. 
And that, of course, doesn't take into account that you can't breathe the air in Saturn. And furthermore, there's nothing to eat there. There's nothing within your body that can cope with that foreign atmosphere. And that's the issue. The first man was of this earth, and we, his children, are of this earth. Furthermore, since the first man sinned and inherited death, we too inherit the same. We are of the earth, and like everything in this earth, we, like it, are dying. But the second man, the man who became a life-giving spirit, is so made to live in the arena of heaven. And with that, Paul comes to verse 49, which is the promise that every believer must take to heart. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, Jesus is not only our Savior, we now bear his image and likeness in ourselves, and just like in his resurrection, he was transformed, so we, like him, when we die, will also be transformed like him, and we will be suited for the life to come, for the life of heaven, and that is our reason for hope. Heavenly Father, Help us to remember not to despair when we read that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Help us to remember that you have prepared for us that we would eat from the tree of life and be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. John, when we started this uh, today, you told me it was going to be a little bit complicated. And I guess it was a little bit, but you did a masterful job of explaining it. I'm beginning to understand what it means to have a spiritual body as opposed to the natural body. Uh, But can I ask you this, and it might sound simplistic, why is that so important? I think it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is that, you know, our experiences of life are all taken up within our bodies. I mean, the, the connection between spirit and body is so absolute that it's impossible for us to imagine life uh, without our body. Uh, and so I would say that, uh, first of all, there are experiences that you have in this life that are unsuited for the life to come, and you shouldn't worry so much about that. But there's a second thing that I also want to say. It's, it's especially to those who are facing their own imminent death. I think what I want to say to them, don't mourn so much at the collapse of your body. You can't take this body into heaven. It was never suited for that. It can't exist there any more than you can exist on Saturn. So don't mourn, but rather rejoice in anticipation. That's a great word of encouragement. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us this next February for our 2018 Celebration Caribbean Cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, our very special musical guests and friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of relaxation, adventure, reflection, and worship. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot today and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada ministry supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate ministry vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by the participants.